seated. Uh, turn, if you would, beloved, to Luke 21. Gospel of Luke, the 21st chapter. I sang this one Lord's Day in Calgary. Uh, a beloved brother in the congregation came to me after the service and used a word I had never heard before. He said, That's a doozy. And uh, I was like, a what? <laughs> so I became acquainted with a new word that day. Ever only all for thee. The words of consecration. Remember a time in your life when language like this would bring you to tears and you would feel this active, deliberate giving of yourself into the hands of the Lord. Maybe as a new believer, a young believer, you're singing lines like this and you just you feel your whole heart being given. You're almost afraid of what it might mean, but you know he's worthy of it nonetheless. So, love it, never move from that place. Don't allow yourself to drift into a familiarity that allows you to sing language like this and it's distant from your own heart. And if you feel yourself dull and you're singing words like this and you get to the end and then you realize I'm not sure my heart was in it. Repent. All our powers, all we have given to the Lord. Luke 21, we pick up in our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we're getting very close to the, the pinnacle of what the Gospels lead us to in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We left off last November, I think it was, at the end of chapter 20, and let us read then the opening four verses, we'll consider some of the context here, but let's read the opening four verses of Luke 21. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. Amen. This is the very word of God, beloved. Receive it as the very oracle of God. 
And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is living. And so help the preacher to get out of the way and let the living word loose upon all of our hearts. This is here for a purpose, for a reason. May we grasp that. By faith receive all that it says to us that at least we can comprehend in this moment. May it shape our living. Should there be any here without Christ, we pray for the subduing of their hearts. Salvation is a gift, Lord. Grant it in thy mercy to those without it here. And we'll give thee all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Scene that we have come to tonight, beloved, brings us into the treasury of the temple of God. In one of the other accounts of this passage, it tells us that the Lord Jesus is actually in a posture of sitting. As he sits, he looks across and he sees this particular event unfold. But as you go through the Word of God, you'll find that the treasury features fairly prominently in the Scriptures. The first time there's an explicit reference to it is when Joshua leads the children of Israel against Jericho and tells them in Joshua 6.18, all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. And as you go through the Word of God, you will find indications of it cropping up over and over again. During David's generation, the treasury is greatly enlarged through his great victories. We read that he put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. He also took shields of gold from the servants of Hadezer, and exceeding much brass. We also learn that Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, all of which David then dedicates to the Lord, along with, quote, the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued. That's in 2 Samuel 8. The Bible sometimes tells us of figures who manage the treasury as well. They are over it or involved in its work. We learn of certain Levites who had responsibility, like Shebuel, who was a descendant of Moses and his son Gershom. We read of him in 1 Chronicles 26, that he was ruler of the treasuries. So, When you think about it, and sometimes we don't do this, when you think about the context, there was a lot of management in the treasury, a lot of work that went into what was stored up within the treasury, as well as the the needs that the entire temple work had on a day-to-day basis. No doubt it required much in the way of accounting skills, and we have quite a number of accountants here, relatively speaking, and so there no doubt was a taking of an inventory, not just of the flour and the wine and the oil and the salt and the myrrh and the cinnamon, the cassia and so on and so forth, as well as the weight of all the gold and the silver and brass, not to mention the quantity of money and coins. And as I was going through and thinking about this, I thought, I'm not sure 
if uh, we were tasked with this job, we would have enough accountants in our church to handle all of this, despite the, the, the number that we have here. As you come to this passage then, our Lord is sitting here in this place. Verse 1, he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. I came to this passage, it was with a certain influence already in my mind. In fact, what we just sang was really what I had in my heart. That The heartbeat of this is that of consecration. That we see in an individual entirely consecrated, and they're presented then as an example for us, to challenge us with regard to her own living. This woman, a widow, gives her, the translation says, two mites. The lepta, probably the equivalent of about a fifth of a cent. So you're dealing with the smallest denomination of money. She has two of them, and she throws it in. And the Lord Jesus is able to discern she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. Now, I don't know whether it was through sermons I've heard on this passage or whether through a little chorus that I had a certain bent as I came to the text. I don't know if you, the children sing the little chorus, two little fishes, five loaves of bread, 5,000 people by Jesus were fed. This is what happened when one little lad gladly gave Jesus all that he had. All that I have, all that I have, I will give Jesus all that I have. Our children sing that, at least in Northern Ireland. I've always loved it. I loved it for the simplicity of it. But there's a second verse to it that sometimes is sung. Not often, but sometimes. One widow woman, two pennies small, Jesus was watching when she gave her all. Then Jesus spoke, for his heart was made glad. See, she has given all that she had. The thing is, I'm not sure that's the point, at least the main point of the passage. And singing past things like that shapes our thinking. We come down to the text, and it's almost like you can't see, you can't, you can't unsee what it is you've been led to believe. You've been there, I'm sure, as well. Of course, part of my work is, is to labor and take in context and read and reread. And the vast majority of what I read went with the same idea that, well, if I can put it this way, if I can simplify all that I was reading, the question that I came down to asking myself is, is this, is this incident and the record of this incident functioning by way of contrast, contrast between the rich and the widow, or condemnation? Is there a certain angle of condemnation that is at the heart of drawing attention to this woman? I think you could argue a case that there is both. Then the question comes back, well, where's the primary emphasis? Is it in the contrast, or is it in the condemnation? I want us to look at this then, with the Lord's help, these verses. I give away something of where I've landed. 
In the title of my message, The Widow's Might, a Mark of False Religion. Not of the woman's false religion, but of what was going on in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three simple headings. We have the context, we have the history, and we have the lesson. So I've broken it up this way, and I trust the Lord will bless us in what we consider here. First, the context. Two things here. I want to consider in the context Christ's past remarks and then Christ's coming pronouncements. His past remarks and his coming pronouncements. With regard to his past remarks, I go back as far, and my mind was taken right back to the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4. In fact, maybe just go back there to uh, refresh your memory on how the Lord Jesus commenced his public ministry as he came into Nazareth. You remember, verse 16, he comes to Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stands up to read. The text on the occasion, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And you read on. The Lord then begins to address these who are struggling to believe in him. Look again at verse 22. Is not this Joseph's son? And so he is faced with this resistance. They will not believe in him. And you move on then to verse 24. He said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. This is what he's faced with. But I tell you of the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And he speaks here then of the lepers and so on. And look at verse 28. All they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him onto the brow of the hill around the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. So this is the response as the Lord Jesus uses the record of a Gentile widow to show the unbelief that was in the Jews in the past. And my conclusion is he uses another widow here to show the unbelief of the Jews of his own day. That this widow, standing in the treasury that day, giving everything she had, showed that this is a nation under judgment, just as it was in Elijah's day. As Elijah sent to, not to a Jewish widow, but to a Gentile widow, because she would receive him, whereas the implication is the Jewish Widows would not. There was resistance to the prophet. Move on to near where our portion is, where we're looking. Go to chapter 19, Luke 19. As the language of judgment increases and multiplies, as we approach where we are in chapter 21, Luke 19, verse 41. He has entered into Jerusalem. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, 
But now they are hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Judgment. Chapter 20. Verse 16, you have the parable of the sower. Verse 16 says, He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Verse 45 of chapter 20 brings us right into the immediate context. Then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses. For a show make long prayers, the same shall receive greater damnation. Now those are the last words in the context to come out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which underlines this is the current religion. Judgment is coming. Which brings us then to consider not just his past remarks, but the coming pronouncements. Look at verse 5 of chapter 21. Now some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones. This is not insignificant. All the wealth that is before them with goodly stones and gifts. He said, as for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Move to verse 20. Language is spoken here of what is to come. Verse 20, then when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people." They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So here you have, leading up to our text, language of judgment, specific judgment regarding the kind of character of these people who devour what widows have, And then immediately carrying on with the language of judgment upon this generation and this people. And it seems then, if you follow me, a little unusual to leap to a message of consecration when the emphasis of our Lord is on judgment. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some application. We'll get to that. There is something to learn in terms of the contrast between everyone else and this widow and their giving. But I think if we come at it with an emphasis like give everything you have, give all that you are to the Lord, we miss 
the thrust of it. Because what she appears to me to be in the hand of the Lord is, is an instrument for him to show this is why judgment is merited. I want us then to consider then not only the context but the history. The history surrounding what the Bible says about widows. And this plays into understanding this passage. First of all, we'll look at warnings from the law of Moses. Then we'll look at warnings from the prophets. I, look, I divide it in that way because the law of Moses lays the foundation for all the life of Israel. The law of Moses says to them, this is what's expected of you. This is what is required of you. And every time they try to reform, that reformation goes back to the books of Moses. That's what's read, that's what's understood, and that is what sets a precedent of how they are to live as a community. So it's important to, for us to understand, there's the foundation of Moses, and then you have the prophets who herald and apply what Moses taught in their generation. So warnings from the law of Moses. And I'll go through this slowly. You may wish to follow. This is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, in giving him food and raiment. This is God. He demands judgment, right judgment and justice for the fatherless and widow. He loves the stranger, giving them food and raiment. Chapter 24, verse 17. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge, since there is that she needs to borrow, she needs some help to get her by, maybe a difficult time, waiting maybe for crops to grow or to be harvested or whatever, and she needs a little help, and as she, she is in terms of lending, there would be a pledge, a pledge to make sure then that the money would be returned. But the stipulation is you do not take a raiment. She needs that. She needs that to stay alive. Don't leave her without clothing and shelter and leave her to the elements to freeze. You're not allowed to do that. There are other things you may take to pledge to make sure that you're paid back, but don't take a raiment. Chapter 27, verse 19. Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, fatherless, and widow. This is the passage we referred to recently. We have the repetition of the congregation affirming what is going on. And all the people shall say, Amen. So again, this is in relation to how we deal with widows, or we might just say the, vul the vulnerable in our community. So these are warnings from the law of Moses. Moses sets the standard. It says, here's how you, to, you are to live. Then we have the warnings from the prophets of God. Because I say the prophets, essentially their job is in a declining day and generation is to take the law of Moses and take the scripture and Pound away at the consciences of those of their generation 
to help them to see that they are out of step with God. This is not what God intended. So you have Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 23. Isaiah 1, verse 23, Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Every one loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. In other words, they can be bribed. Every one. All your leaders can be bribed. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. In other words, they have no time. They don't even listen. They're too busy dealing with all the other affairs that they put upon themselves, especially the lining of their own pockets and the advancement of their own projects. They're too busy with that to even hear the cause of the widow. This is brought to light by Isaiah, Isaiah 10, chapter 10, verse, 20, well, verse 2, rather. Isaiah 10, verse 2. It speaks of to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. This is what's going on. Then go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Sounds the same warning. Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, verse 3 and following. Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, and do no violence to the stranger, to the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. For if ye do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house king sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. But if ye will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. It will be destroyed if you don't execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor and do no wrong, no violence to the stranger, the fathers, nor the widow. Ezekiel joins in. Ezekiel 22 as well. Ezekiel 22 verse 7. And thee have they set light by father and mother, in the midst of thee have they dealt by oppression with the stranger, and thee have they vexed the fatherless and the widow. Zechariah, chapter 7. Zechariah 7, verse 10 and following. I, I'm, I'm deliberately reading all these references so you know that Moses lays a foundation and you have these little statements of how to look upon and help and minister to widows. And then you have generations that don't give heed to those little details. And as the prophets address the sins of their generation, 
one of the things that keeps bothering them, because God is telling them what to say, one of the things that keeps coming up as a matter of their disobedience that grieves the Lord is how they deal with the vulnerable, particularly widows. And so every, what would appear, a lot of the prophets are sent out with this message. Zechariah 7.10, Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. Let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken, pulled away the shoulder, and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried, and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. That's a really interesting study, by the way, of when we stop listening to God, he stops listening to us. I don't want to get sidetracked, but it's a, it's a frightening revelation of, of kind of whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You start ignoring what God says, he starts ignoring what you ask for and you and your cry of need. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, and no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. And then Malachi 3, Malachi 3, the last prophet who speaks even in this chapter of the Lord's coming suddenly to his temple and so on and so forth. But verse 5, in the context of that messianic expectation and revelation, Malachi 3 verse 5, I will come near to you in judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Now it goes on. You deal with that. It actually talks about bringing in our, our tithes into the storehouses and so all of that's within the context of Malachi 3. But one of the things that bothers the Lord is this negligence and hard-hearted spirit towards the vulnerable. And in our context, we're dealing with the widow particularly. Now the Lord Jesus... And one of the ways to, to, to look at the life of the Lord Jesus, and especially as he comes into Jerusalem, is to see him functioning in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. He comes into Jerusalem as a king. He cleanses like a priest, clearing out the house of God. And as a prophet, he argues, he stands his ground, he pronounces truth. And here you have him now discerning what's going on discerning what's going on in the house of God, in the treasury. He sits down, he looks up, going back to Luke 21, saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. There's nothing wrong with those who have means throwing in what they have. They go into the, the treasurer's the, the, the court of women, they walk in there in this initial court and there were three places for giving money. There was actually a metal pipe where they could put their money and it would move down the metal pipe into the boxes that would contain the money. And some have, have speculated that if you were in that area enough, you would actually be able to know what people were giving 
based on the sound of the coin going through that metal, you would know the different sort of type of metal and its thickness and weight and so on would make a different pitch as it would move down that. And some have said this perhaps even not just for Christ, but for, for many, you would have an idea of what people were giving and putting into the treasure, especially for someone who has just two little coins and puts them down and they would have their own certain sound as they move their way, it moves its way down into the treasury box. Well, this is where the Lord is. And I say to you, beloved, He stands here like one of the prophets of old. It's actually, as He enters into this, as He addresses this, as He observes what is happening, He is functioning in His prophetic role. He is going on the, the train of those who have gone before Him, who have not ignored this particular area of what God requires among His people. And when it's not functioning, when it's being ignored, when people are overlooking their responsibilities to the vulnerable, he is not a bit pleased and it will be addressed. And the Lord, seeing all of this, I believe is deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. And to come at it then, to make a primary emphasis upon the fact that here's an example for us to give everything we have, at least in part misses the point. Because as I, as I said, I, I think there's more going on here. Now, in verse 47 of the previous chapter, they devour a widow's houses. These are the scribes, religious elite, they're devouring their houses. We're, we're not told exactly how this happened. One commentator says, perhaps they cheated the widow's of what was rightly theirs, acting as guardians appointed by the deceased husband's will to care for the widow's estate. So he's gone, obviously, she's alive, and he's appointed someone to help manage and undertake for her in her need. That commentator goes on to say, a later rabbinic text complains against lawyers who manage a widow's estate and extract excessive fees, end quote. So this is an observation in history, something that was going on at the time. Now, again, we don't know the exact details of how they were devouring widows' houses, but the point is this, that in some fashion, this is what they were doing. And these, these women who were dependent, they'd, and this is the thing, when a woman marries a man and lives dependent on him to provide, she lives for years in that state of dependency. That means that she is not, generally speaking, in a position to be planning ahead for the future, building wealth for the future, making sure that she has what she needs for the future. She's just, she's not, she's, she's taking care of the household, generally speaking. And so it's up to the man to make sure something happens then, as best as he can, he, he's made provision for her. Now, in these cases... These men, it would appear, have done that. These, these husbands have done that. They have made provision, but in some way, scribes or religious leaders get involved while the widow's still alive and begin to, understanding what wealth she has, and recognizing what they begin to extract from her, devouring what the husband has left behind. And this is wicked. So what then is the lesson? 
what is the point of the Lord Jesus in a theme of, of judgment that comes up and then increases more and more as you approach the cross, why throw this in? Is it just to look at how everyone was there able to give and then this woman cast in her two mites and then he observes? And note this, he doesn't, he doesn't condone or condemn. Don't, don't read in what's not there. He doesn't condone, he doesn't condemn. Of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. All these have their abundance cast in onto the offerings of God, but she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. You start reading commentators. I'm going to read a couple of commentators here that give what I think is a fair assessment of, of where many are. One says, The contrast is between the false piety of the rich lawyers and the genuine piety of one poor woman. This is another lesson for Luke's readers on how one's faith should influence his or her attitude toward money. Jesus presented the real issue on how, a real issue as being how much one keeps for himself or herself rather than how much one gives away. So it's not, they're obviously able to give more than she has given. So the real assessment is, the real judgment is, what's left? And in her case, there was nothing left. She gave everything. Now the commentator says, in sharp contrast to the poor model offered by the scribes stands that of the poor widow whose lavish generosity consisted of giving two lepta coins of the very least value and the sum of her possessions. The presence of the rich putting in large gifts would have even further diminished what she gave had it not been for Jesus. He did not romanticize a small gift or strike out against the large he weighed all the gifts, not by sentiment, but by a standard which was the same for all. How much does one have remaining after the offering is made? Thus measured, the widow's gift was by far the greatest because she had nothing left. The offering of everything, whatever the amount, is the unexcelled gift. So if you take it that way, and there's all sorts of application, isn't there? I mean, who, who's the one who gave everything and held back nothing? The Lord Jesus. He gave everything and held back nothing. And we could start going down that line and saying, there's the example, there's the model. And here we have it in a specific area where he is taking this widow and saying, look, basically, if we could use this kind of language, she's done as I have done. That's what... Everyone should do. This is the model. If she's a model, then you cannot be like her until you give everything you have. Not only does she give everything she has, but she gives everything she has in the absence of the ability to actually gain wealth. She's probably older and hasn't anything that she can do I'm, I'm not sure that's a model. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for that to be a model to me. Anytime you give away all that you have, either A, 
you know you have the ability to work again and regain what you need to get by. Right? So if a 30-year-old young man with gifts and talent and skill gives away everything he has, in all probability, he'll be fine. He'll, he'll figure it out. Able-bodied people aren't as vulnerable. So either you do that. B, you have been commissioned to a form of ministry and there is a system of support around you. This was true of our Lord Jesus. He is called, commissioned by the Father into ministry and those around him support him. They have a bag, a bag of money. He gives it to Judas. We all know about that. And you have women who ministered on to him of their substances in this gospel, chapter 8. So he has a support network, supporting him as he goes around preaching and ministers and prepares the disciples for the same work. He had nowhere to lay his head. He had nothing, but he had a network that supported him and what he was doing. So th this is where you are. You give everything. To, to, to find any justification to give everything, either you have the ability to regain it or you've been put into a place where God, in his call upon your life, puts you in the hands of others to, to take care of your, your substance. Those that minister the gospel live by the gospel. The other conclusion I have is to give everything away. And let's say you can't work to regain everything or you're not in some kind of ministry with a system of network or a network around you to support you, it, I can't get away from the sense that this is an act of entitlement. Because to do that assumes other people then who have disciplined themselves and saved and done everything necessary to manage their affairs are going to do what's necessary to keep you alive. Which screams to me of entitlement. Now then you come back to the widow and you ask yourself, well, was she, what was she doing? I, I actually don't know. We're not given enough details. I'm not sure if she had come to the point where she had given up the will to live. These, 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 these fifth, fifth of a cent, fifth of a, that, that's what it was, nothing. Almost nothing. She's come to a point where I'll just give it to the Lord. Because it wasn't going to cause her to live any longer anyway. I, I don't know. I can't say for sure. But I, I find it really difficult. And, and if, if we take the traditional route then, you're not doing what you should until you give everything you have. And if we all do that, where does that leave us all? It, it becomes illogical. At least it would appear to me. Now, it doesn't take away the fact that Christ assesses our giving. That's clearly there. And that has its own application. That allows us then to remember when, as we manage our affairs, as we order our living and what we have and what God has given to us and as we work and save and all the rest, how we address and manage all of that is assessed by the Lord. Don't think it's not. It is. That sobers us. The king sits on his throne and assesses how we support his kingdom. But the real issue here as we come near to the end, the real issue here is that 
there was this community to which many people were committed and dedicated. And part of its role, part of its function, is to be there for those who qualify for aid and help. And when it comes to widows, 1 Timothy 5 gives details of the criteria of what is a, a widow indeed. What they look like. And that's a passage that needs to be studied because by being a widow doesn't immediately put upon the community the fact that you're qualified to be taken care of. There are other criteria. The first, the first port of call is the family. That's their job. Take care of your parents, your mother who's left need. But where they're not there or where they refuse to do their job, and that's part of the church's job, is to teach. <laughs> this is your job. Do your job. If they don't, if they refuse to, then it comes on the community then to assess whether certain individuals meet that criteria and then they become enrolled in a very real way for the support of the community. Now that is the way it was meant to be in the temple among the Jewish community. And Christ is surrounded by wealth, wealthy people giving of their wealth. There's wealth all over the temple. It's on display and opulence that causes everyone to stand in amazement every time they go to Jerusalem. All of that is there. And if I'm getting this right, if my meditation and study and pondering over this passage this past week is right, this, this here is not here first to say, give everything you have. It, it is here as a sobering warning of how our Lord Jesus, as King, sits in judgment over those who profess to be the Lord's people. And when they continue in a course of neglecting the most vulnerable in their midst, he will withdraw. Ichabod is written over them. There will be no blessing. They are not the people of God. They do not represent God. In the language of the letters to Revelation, they'll be spewed out of his mouth, put out. That's the same language as used of the Canaanite nations. They were, they were spewed out. They were spewed out of the nation put out so that the, the people who would do God's will would be put in their place in that land. And the same is true in the New Testament. It doesn't change. Those who take the name of the Lord have responsibility. Part of the responsibility relates to matters of justice and social responsibility. And I'm saying to you that this, this the Lord, in drawing attention to this widow, he is adding, he is giving further grounds, weight for all the language of judgment he's already articulated and is about to come. Because people are going to say, why? Why should Jerusalem fall? Why should the house be left unto them desolate? Why should he allow, why should God allow the Gentiles to come in and flatten the city and not leave one stone upon another? Why? And it would appear to me that the Lord is basically saying, this is why. This is why they have no conscience, no awareness of basic, practical, living 
They do not function as my hands and feet. They have no comprehension of my heart for the vulnerable. That's, that's the sobering lesson. And so, beloved, it comes in as a fresh reminder. My assessment here is largely encouraging of the interest many of you have, both in practical terms, in terms of your helping, visiting, and your financial contribution in relation to this matter. It is, it is encouraging. This matters to some of you, maybe many of you. I say to you, this is highly important. Like you're looking for certain litmus tests for who the true people of God are. This is one of them. Turn to Acts 6, just before we close. Acts 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. There's a problem. Growing pains, oversight of responsibility is not being met. Other factors. You know what happens. They appoint men to oversee, not just to apply themselves to it, but they're going to have management. These seven men will have management to make sure these practical things are being met. When this happens, look at verse 7. The word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. You don't read that very often. It seems to me, it seems to me that this little community, little comparatively to the scale of Jerusalem and all of its activity in the synagogues and everything, little in comparison, this community functioning in this way, recognizing the need of their widows and earnestly trying to meet every one of those needs, trying to manage and assess and realize we have responsibility here and here and here. Let us address it. Let us deal with it. Let us understand it. Let us commit to this. Let's appoint men to help us reach, make sure everything's been handled correctly, at least to the best of our ability. When Jewish priests, religious leaders saw the priority. Around them were scribes devouring widows' houses. And here is this community preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And they say, no way, no way. And then they see the hands and feet. They see the activity. They see the concentrated desire they have to manage, to make sure these things are being met. And the priests are left 
in this position where they have to consider that God appears to be among these people. They're helping the vulnerable. And they become open to the message. They bow the knee to Christ. Join the church. And oh, how that helped the church. This influx of priests with all of their scriptural knowledge and all of their wisdom and all of their experience flooding into this infant church to bolster her, strengthen her, where they're saying, this, this is what we have needed all along. This, this is the work of God. So we hear a lot about social justice today. Most of it is absolute garbage. But in recognizing that 90% of it may be garbage, we do not say to ourselves, there's no such thing as justice in society. There are responsibilities. God honors, abides among, makes his presence known to that people who see the vulnerable in their midst and respond swiftly to help where they can. If we don't, we're not the Lord's. And the threats made to Jerusalem of the house being left desolate, the threats made to the church in Revelation in the letters of him withdrawing his presence are as real to us those who have been grafted into the vine can easily be cut out and the Lord will do it. We don't see these kind of things as priority in the outworking of our faith. If you're here and you're not in Christ, I want you to understand the heartbeat of Christ for the vulnerable. Because there's no greater vulnerability than being unregenerate before God. There's no greater vulnerability than standing before Almighty God, unrighteous and unholy. Judgment is certain. Christ's heart breaks not just for the widow, but for the lost. He might stand in their place. And plead their cause. Therefore I appeal to you. Don't just see yourself in terms of vulnerable financially or not. See yourself in terms spiritual. You're in poverty. Spiritually. And you need Christ. May the Lord draw you to himself. Let's bow together in prayer. Beloved, let us work together as a community. The deacons of this church, I can say without hesitation, are always ready to hear a case of need within our congregation. 
We have many willing hands and hearts. And God has blessed us with the means as well to help those who legitimately need help. We'll never suffer in silence. I trust it will never be said of this place that we will not hear the cause of the widow. Lord, help us to have tender hearts towards those around us in need. Grant us grace to discern. And when we are surrounded by many who seek to take advantage of kind hearts, we pray we would not become hardened to the real needy individuals in our midst. Give grace to us, Lord, and help us. May this place, by thy grace and help, minister the gospel, both in word and in deed. Should there be one here without Christ, in far worse position, as they stand without righteousness without holiness, without a relationship with the Lord Jesus, we pray that you will bring them to an end of themselves. That they would see Christ beckoning and calling them to himself. Save them, we pray. Bless our time of fellowship. Empower us to live throughout the rest of this week. Give the fullness of the Holy Ghost to every born-again child of God. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore.